Well, hey there, everybody. We'd like to invite you to visit South Dakota through the eyes of local Lou. She'll take you on a tour of lots of things to see and do. So enjoy your virtual visit through the eyes of local Welcome to the Local Lube Podcast. Thanks for coming back, guys. I appreciate it. I appreciate every single one of you guys that listens to me. It makes me smile and feel super happy, and it makes all of this uh, research and hard work totally worth it. I would do it even if you didn't listen, but it's so cool that you do. I've been deep in thought and research over the coming weeks of episodes dealing with the Dakota War of 1862, and I humbly, humbly, humbly remind you that I am an amateur. I'm an amateur historian, and this is a hobby of mine that I love sharing with all of you. We're going to get right into it today, though. Again, I realize these historical markers are not only marking little pieces of history in South Dakota, they are also telling a larger story. While the Treaty of Travers de Sioux was not signed in South Dakota, the implications and the results live here today. This treaty, in fact, probably affects a great many more people in places than I fully understand. This historical marker has a primo location at Falls Park near Picnic Pavilion to the west of the falls. And so far, each time I've visited it, I've gotten to watch people read it. I love that. I absolutely love watching people almost walk by a historical marker, but then stop and read it. Let's get right to it. Historical marker, 1851 Indian Treaty. On July 23rd, 1851, at Travers de Sioux, near present-day St. Peter, Minnesota, 35 Sisseton and Wapaton chiefs and headmen signed a treaty that had profound effects on the future Sioux Falls. More than 24 million acres of tribal land, including all land east of the Big Sioux River, was ceded to the federal government and became available for settlement. In 1856, speculators arrived to survey the area, and a year later, settlers founded the tiny village of Sioux Falls City, Minnesota Territory. The treaty granted the tribe's annuities, $275,000 cash and other rights. Unscrupulous traders claimed that they were owed large sums. After the chiefs made their marks on the treaty document, traders persuaded them to settle tribal debts by assigning away the cash payment. Starvation, hopelessness, and smoldering resentment over the loss of land and treaty cash eventually erupted into the Dakota Conflict of 1862. Following the slayings of Judge Amadon and his son William, Sioux Falls City was abandoned. Seven years elapsed before the town site was settled a second time. Historical marker, 1851 Indian Treaty. Falls Park, Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Signed on July 23, 1851, the Treaty of Travers de Sioux ceded millions, several millions of acres of land from the Sisseton and Wapaton bands of the Dakota to the United States in exchange for a reservation in annual annuity payments. Unfortunately, the United States didn't hold up its end of the agreement. Broken promises would lead to hunger, deprivation, and eventually an uprising. The Treaty of Travers de Sioux of 1851 is an agreement between the Sisseton and Wapaton bands of the Dakota and the U.S. government. It transferred ownership of much of the southern and western Minnesota from the Dakota to the United States. Along with the Treaty of Mandota, 
signed the same year, it opened 24 million acres of lands to settlers. For the Dakota, these treaties marked another step in a process that saw them increasingly marginalized and dismissed from their own lands. The signing of the Treaty of Travers de Sioux is marked by a boulder. This is a great representation, to me at least, of the rock in a hard place that the native people were trapped between when they were pressured by the U.S. military and traders to sign away their lands in what is now Minnesota. They also lost lands in northern Iowa and eastern South Dakota. Minnesota had become a territory in 1849, and settling the new land was a priority for the U.S. Minnesota would not become a state, though, until 1858. With the Louisiana Purchase in 1803, a steady flow of white immigrants moving west deeper and deeper into Indian lands, it was inevitable. As these lands like the Minnesota Territory became more and more populated, uh, influential men, including Alexander Ramsey and Henry Sibley, convinced the U.S. government to negotiate the purchase of land from the American Indian groups living in the region. Though through this transaction, Ramsey and Sibley Sibley, uh, hoped to recoup debts that fur traders claimed various Indian bands owed them. By 1851, both the Sisseton and Wapiton bands of the Dakota were in a difficult situation. With a larger population brought new hunters and trappers, businesses, and overhunting that depleted the wildlife that they lived on, the Dakota were no longer able to live off the land. Selling their land as a way to gain resources that they needed to survive seemed the only viable option for them to survive. In July of 1851, Sibley, Ramsey, and Federal Commissioner Luke Lee chose Travers de Sioux as a site for treaty negotiations. The Dakota were in a weak bargaining position, and they believed that if they did not sell their land, the United States would just take it. Some bands of the Dakota had yet to arrive for negotiations, and many of the leaders that were there weren't really in agreement about what they were signing. There was a hope, though, that in signing that the U.S. would follow through on their end with an initial cash payment and then annual annuities that would financially support this huge shift from hunting and gathering to living strictly on a small piece of land set aside reservations. Negotiations took several days, and some Dakota leaders initially resisted the demands made by the commissioners because they asked for too much. Ultimately, however, the Dakota gave in. Remember that rock in a hard place? After the Dakota leaders had signed two copies of the treaty, they were directed to a third piece of paper held by Joseph R. Brown, a prominent fur trader at the time. The document would later be known as the Trader's Papers, and they directed the government to pay off various debts claimed by fur traders using the money owed to the bands from the treaty. Okay, what? That means that the the Native American people just signed a piece of paper to get a bunch of money, and now they're signing a second piece of paper saying that this guy gets their bunch of money. No one read the paper out loud or translated it for the Dakota, many of whom believed it just to be another copy of the treaty because why wouldn't you believe that? There were two tables and two completely different documents, the legal treaty and the illegal trading papers. Now forced into small pieces of land with less than they were promised, the Dakota became even more dependent on a government that was less willing to honor their agreements. The treaty arranged for payment to the Sisseton and Wapiton bands for the land that they ceded. 
They were to receive a portion of the money immediately. Some funds were set aside for construction of schools and other services, and the rest was to be placed in an account by the federal government. From that account, the bands were to receive an annual interest payment on both cash and goods. Following the treaty, Sibley, Ramsey, and Lee negotiated a similar treaty in Mendota with other bands of the Dakota, which was signed on August 5th of 1851. In the decade after the signing of these treaties, over 100,000 white immigrants moved to Minnesota to live on the land that the indigenous people had ceded. Philander Prescott was present at the signing of the treaty and helped to work as an interpreter. Since there were some under-table dealings and we already know the end of his story, it does make a little bit more sense as to why he was possibly not held in such high regard. As we know, this is a precursor to the Dakota War. One more important note is that the Sisseton and Wapiton bands had not participated in Little Crow's War, i.e. the Dakota War of 1862. They had actually rebuffed his attempts to engage them in the conflict. But even though they did not fight in that war, they suffered the same consequences. A common practice at treaty signings was a presentation of peace medallions. This custom was begun before the Revolutionary War to curry favor and recognize tribal leaders that aligned with British or French. And that practice continued under the new American government as it was expanded west into the lands of the Louisiana Purchase. A few of these medallions from the Treaty of Traverse de Sioux are still in existence. And I will end with this prophetic quote from Red Cloud. Red Cloud was an important leader of the Oglala Lakota, who led a successful campaign against the United States Army between 1866 and 1868. The conflict began over white encroachment into territory inhabited by Native American Plains tribes in the Wyoming and Montana territories, and it ended with the Fort Laramie Treaty in 1868, which established the Great Sioux Reservation. Red Cloud and his people settled on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in South Dakota, but he would go on to regret the signing of that treaty, stating, They made us many promises, more than I can remember. But they kept but one. They promised to take our land, and they took it. I included that quote mostly because it's hard to ignore. It's hard to not look directly at that and get some sort of awful sinking feeling inside. These indigenous people to this land that I currently live in were forced into a corner and asked to assimilate into a life they weren't interested in leading. And a lot of them weren't successful at that, because why would you be? I think the most frustrating part is even the ones who were able to successfully assimilate, it didn't exactly equate into a better life for them. And I find that to be pretty unfair. Although a lot of what we just learned about is unfair. I also feel like I read this book, The Inconvenient Indian, and on the back cover, there was a really good quote from the Vancouver Sun uh, that was reviewing the book. They said, quote, The Inconvenient Indian may well be unsettling for many non-natives in this country to read. That is exactly why we should read it, especially now, end quote. And I think the especially now isn't even 
a thing because I think a lot of history books have not accurately portrayed indigenous or Native American peoples. And so that's why I think it's super important for this amateur historian white girl to look into it. It'd be really cool to see more age age demographics and races get really interested in this history because it is dirty. Some dirty dealings were done and it's really important to figure those out and figure out uh, what you think about it and how that looks in the lens of our current environment and how you would be so surprised at how little has changed. There are still Native American stories in the news that are heart-wrenching. And I encourage you guys to look into it. Look into laws that are still on the books that may not be enforced, but they're there. And how awful would that feel if those were your people? But this is just another step uh, towards the Dakota War of 1862 that I'm really excited to shed some light on. I'm going to have a really cool guest of Hashtag History, which is another podcast that I really love listening to. They have been my go-to. They are a female-driven podcast that is really fun and also informative. I pretty much met them day one of starting my podcast. Um, And I guess I I didn't meet them at all. I'm going to meet them when we record our episode together. It's just a pretty big deal to me. And I feel really excited to get some more hands into this project. I know I'm not an important voice on this topic, but I am a voice. And I hope that hearing a little bit about this treaty about this historical marker about this time makes you kind of interested in it and makes you kind of maybe want to go to your library I can I can tell you a hundred percent the Siouxland library has tons of books on this topic but I'm sure your library does too in fact if you're going to the Siouxland library to get some of these books I still have them so sorry about that So I've talked about it before, but there is a book written by Bruce Blake, who was a really awesome historian in the area who basically created this historical marker project. So obviously we would have been besties. Well, I have his book, 12,000 Years of Human History, as recorded on historical markers in Minnehaha County, South Dakota, compiled and edited by Bruce Blake, with contributions by members of the Minnehaha County Historical Society. This book is amazing. This book is also really expensive. And I was able to get it for, I don't even want to tell you guys how much. (laughs) It is for like a fifth of the price, actually less than that. It was like a sixth of the price. And I got it at a place called Last Stop CD Shop. I got it secondhand and it is in almost perfect condition. No complaints here. So on page 51, they have a drawing or interpretation of the signing of the Treaty of Travers de Sioux. It's it's cool. I don't know how accurate it is. It's interesting to see. Um, we have this canopy that's made out of, it looks like trees and wood and kind of a leaf thatched roof. There's an American flag flying in the background, which I believe is true because I read an article in a South Dakota magazine talking about the flag that flew over the Treaty of Travers de Sioux still being in existence. And I know that's one of those things that's really hard to um, nail down the accuracy of it, but I believe it. I totally believe that. I think that's so cool to have that piece of history, even though the treaty itself 
is sort of a negative piece of history. I think the flag still existing and being held by the indigenous people is so cool. So there is a caption that I'll read from the picture. It goes, there were three steps involved for Indian leaders when they signed the 1851 treaty on behalf of their tribes. First, a chief or headman would be formally introduced to the representatives of the federal government. Then the leader would be shown where to, quote, touch a pen, end quote, to the document by making an X. And lastly, the chief or headman would be led to a hogshed or barrel to sign a second document. The Indian leaders mistakenly believed that they were signing a second copy of the treaty, when in fact they were executing an assignment to satisfy claims which a trader held against the tribe. This document assigned to the trader all or substantially all of the cash payments, which would become due under the terms of the treaty. For the most part, the purported claims of the traders were non-existent, fraudulent, or grossly inflated. And I can tell you, having already done my research for the episode about the Dakota conflict, this isn't an isolated incident. Traders would often grossly inflate what the native people owed them so they could collect directly from the government these funds and that is really confusing for me because i pay bills myself the bills don't come into my account and take it directly from my employer so it's a head shaker it's another point of history to really look at and figure out it isn't super duper clear cut who the bad guy is there because it kind of feels like a lot of people are complicit in that it's important to note that both um henry sibley and philander prescott would both write letters or speak to high-ranking officials about this they would talk very openly about the native people being robbed and Sibley later in his life would kind of stray away from being an advocate the second that it didn't get something for him in return and we don't 100% know if that was the case for Philander or not it feels like they saw the bad things happening and they stood up for what was right as long as it either benefited them or didn't hurt them. It's a lot to think about. It's a lot to look into. It's a lot to process. And I'm so excited to show you guys even more about it as we continue on with this. I can tell you I have a minimum of 10 little bookmarks popping out of this book that are all historical markers that relate to the Dakota conflict, the Dakota War, the Dakota Uprising, Little Crow's War. There's a lot of names but it's all the same thing. And I'll tell you, we already actually heard it on a couple historical markers that I've covered, like Yankton Trail Bridge. Do you guys remember that episode? Apparently I don't because <laughs> this was like on that. And I was really surprised when I read that because it just didn't, it didn't click to me at all. So this history, it's right there. It's right at the surface. It's just whether we're looking at it or not. If you guys like Local Lou, come and check out my Instagram where I share uh, pictures of historical markers. And then in my story, I share bits and pieces of my personal life and kind of what's going on with me. I really appreciate you guys' support. I'm so thankful that you guys are listening. So keep listening. Have a great and wonderful day, guys. And I'll catch you next time on the Local Lou podcast.